I had enough energy that if I needed to, I could turn towards the center of the lake, clear the boats, and then make it out to the water. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. So happy you've joined us today. Wow, do we have an exciting episode lined up for you. A lot of you have been talking about that picture we posted on social media and a lot of you have questions. So today the pilot of that glider that you saw pictured in Lake Tahoe, David Crowder, is here and he's going to sit down with our friend and guest host, Zach Yamauchi, to answer those questions and give us all the details of the events of that day. Before we join them, I do want to thank all of you for sharing the podcast and helping to spread the word, which is also, of course, helps grow the soaring community. You can find us on social media at Soaring the Sky Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Also, I would like to give a big thank you to our Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast financially. Now, if you'd like to help us out and grow the show, you can go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky or log onto our website at soaringthesky.com and just click on the support the show. Please stick around after we hear from our guest pilot today for another very informative segment from our friend Sergio, the Soaring Master. Greatly appreciate his contribution to the podcast each and every episode. Okay, I know you're excited to hear this incredible story, so let's join Zach and David now for episode 124. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. David, thank you so much for joining us on Soaring the Sky and being willing to share your story. I think I can speak for everyone who is aware of what happened. And when I say I'm extremely glad that you're able to remain unharmed after this accident. But before we get into the details of the day and the time leading up to your water landing, why don't you share your soaring journey from us? Start to present day. Uh, absolutely. Um, thank you for the invite and doing the podcast. And uh, I'm really glad to be able to share my story uh, because I, I do have the opportunity to share my story because I am uh, still, in fact, alive and on earth. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and there was a small grass strip uh, just east of it called Moontown Airport, and it was about 2,200 feet long, 50 feet wide, and it was a very nice grass strip. I grew up washing airplanes and watching the lounge and pumping gas, and then eventually it turned into making friends and helping people work on airplanes and um, eventually getting my private pilot's license there. I knew of soaring because there's a club at the airport and so I knew that there was this type of flying where people took off about noon and they would come back around five or six, but I never really got uh, too much involved in it or understood that. And then later on, I, I went to college and I kind of got out of flying uh, just because I was doing college. Uh, I eventually got into learning German and had an opportunity to go to Germany to uh, study at the Technical University in Munich. And there, I, I met some people with the Aka Fliege there. Didn't do much with them, but did uh, get interacted and went out to their airport one time and saw this um, very elaborate winch launching operation and all these unique uh, gliders that they had built over the 60 or 70 years that they'd been a, a group and had all these unique test airplanes uh, or gliders. And one time even built like an aerobatic tow plane 
um, to kind of make a new tow plane. So I, I knew of that. And then when I finally graduated college, I was living in the middle of Atlanta, Georgia. When I was at college, I went with some people in the flying club at my university and I wasn't really impressed um, in the regards of the type of flying that was done. It's very procedure oriented. It's uh, talk to the tower, ask for permission to, to taxi to the end of the runway, wait for Gulfstream jets to land. And then you go fly and you're in the middle of class B airspace. So you obviously need to talk to tower and controllers and be aware of very heavy airplanes flying around at very rapid speeds. And, um, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. And uh, I had a friend who had gotten her sailplane rating recently, and she talked about how fun it was. And then from my history in Germany and from my time at Moontown in Huntsville, like the three dots just kind of hit me. And I, I figured like doing sailplanes and maybe getting in the cross country is exactly the type of flying I wanted to do. And so um, very shortly after I got hired, and was making some money, I called up Dan Nugent from my club, the Mid-Georgia Soaring Association. And I said, I'm a private pilot. I haven't flown in a while. I'm really um, excited to get uh, involved. And I want to join your club and start flying gliders. And he was like, hold on a second. Uh, we don't really train people right now because we just don't have the capabilities in the club to do that. But um, go see this guy named Phil LaBerge. He owns a farm in South Georgia and his wife tows and you go down there and um, I showed up to his farm and the first thing that happened to me was three kind of puppy dogs uh, tackled me and started licking my face and I got up and I, I met Philip and he showed me his horses and um, he had this very cool grass strip in the middle of some very tall trees, which was uh, challenging to, to land in and uh I flew a K7 to uh, solo and then did my 10 solo flights, got my signed off, shook his hand and went to uh, Mid-Georgia Soaring Association where they mentored me uh, to be a cross-country pilot. And within the year, they allowed me to take their very new refinished LS4 and go fly my silver distance um, in Cordell, Georgia. And that flight is the flight that hooked me to cross-country soaring and made me never want to actually uh, think about getting in a powered airplane again. I just wanted to fly uh, gliders and then um, did a couple of competitions and then moved to California for a job change and uh, uh, living with my girlfriend and then um, went down to Warner Springs and I bought an LS6, went up to Truckee and did a, a couple of competitions and then uh, my most recent success is I successfully landed in a lake and did not uh, injure myself. And so that's where we are today. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. Um, yeah, your soaring journey does go back quite some time. It's awesome that you got that chime in Germany as well. I didn't know about that. Um, there's a whole nother side of this though, too. There was a, we, you and I first connected about a year and a half ago. Um, I had recently, maybe uh, about a six months or a year prior to that, finished up my refinish project on my discus. And you were seeking some advice, kind of interested in uh, doing a restoration, either partial or full refinish on your LS6. And uh, um, we had some good conversations about that. I think I kind of pushed you over the edge to refin commit to refinishing your personal plane instead of a different one. But uh, 
yeah, why don't you share with us um, the project um, and everything that went involved in, in doing a beautiful restoration on your LS6? Uh, yeah, um, I had just so happened to have some time and a little extra money that I wanted to complete a life goal of mine, which was to refinish myself uh, an airplane or a glider. And like you said, I called you up to talk about um, maybe buying like a, a club class airplane of some type that was like really run out and then do it on that and and then sell it or keep it or let juniors fly it or, or something. And then you were like very uh, aptly uh, to know that like you should probably burn your ship um, if you want to get it done and then um, do it well. And uh, so I decided to do my LS6, which um, I at the end was really happy I, I, I did that for. And um, so the project was a actually kind of a, a big project. I completely refinished everything on the airplane. I added the newer Neo winglets to it. I installed one of those uh, cockpit suction vents. Um, you see them on Schleichers on the, the top deck of the turtle deck and um, the newer Yonkers and Schleicher AS33s have them down by the wheel well, which that's where mine was. Let's see, I also put on a new hydraulic brake kit from Behringer and I did some little some little things to just kind of update the airplane and getting going. And I spent a lot of time doing it, um, kind of embarrassingly over 1200 hours uh, to get the whole thing done. I got a lot of help from a lot of people yourself. Uh, I actually, you, you helped me uh, um, rebuild my tail tank, which needed to um, be kind of semi-destroyed to be able to replace the O-ring on. And I had others, a lot of people out at uh, Warner Springs uh, and Skyscaling uh, give me advice, uh, especially Rick Anderson, who um, helped me on some of the tougher stuff with the modifications. And so was really proud to have like a, a brand new uh, refinished glider uh, ready to go. And uh, that was in April. So I had it for about two months before I, I put it into the lake. Yeah, it's a unfortunate state for that aircraft currently, but uh, I, I had the pleasure of flying with you at Avenal um, a couple months back. I think whatever your first few flights in it and boy, was that the nicest glider on the line. <laughs> so you did an incredible job and all your workmanship did show um, the, the care and time and energy you put into it really did did uh, produce a beautiful result. Thank you, Zach. I really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. David, so we spoke last week about the day of your lake, de- lake landing in, in great detail, um, kind of debriefing the event, debriefing the day, figuring out what exactly went on. And uh, for, for those listeners that are not familiar with the Sierra Nevada, um, Lake Tahoe, Truckee area, just kind of give you guys a brief overview of that, that soaring site. So Truckee is a beautiful airport located um, right outside of the town of Truckee um, at 62 or 6,000 feet um, field elevation um, in Northern California. Um, and a, a few miles south of the airport is Lake Tahoe. So it's a alpine lake, one of the biggest lakes in California, um, 12 miles north to south, sorry, 22 miles north to south, 12 miles east to west, um, and surrounded by eight and 9,000 foot peaks um, right up against the water, essentially. So um, small watershed, um, a bowl, essentially, that surrounds that lake. Um, And it offers spectacular soaring, spectacular views, but 
getting back into Truckee at the end of the day, being next to um, essentially a bowl to the south of it, and then high mountains on all other sides, um, presents certain challenges. So obviously David will discuss um, some of those challenges he met that day. Um, but yes, Truckee is a fantastic site, but definitely more on, on the advanced side of things. So David, to finish up this question, one thing I do recall you mentioning was that th- that day was already the worst day of soaring you had, even before you landed in the lake. Obviously, the day didn't end how you would have liked it, but what were the other factors before taking off and well in the air that led to a less than desired outcome? Yeah. Um, so when I arrived in Truckee days beforehand, um, I was actually shocked to find the temperatures at Truckee to be um, not summer-like. Uh, I think the Friday and Saturday that I before flying, um, I, I landed in the water on Sunday. Um, so Friday and Saturday uh, were highs of um, mid-40s during the day and um, as low as 30 And I think on Saturday night, it was like 27 degrees, the low during the night. I wasn't really prepared for um, winter conditions in the middle of July. Normally, the Truckee Contest is a month later. And the times that I've been up here, it is... You mean uh, the middle of June, right? Yeah, the middle of June. And so when I've been to Truckee, uh, the temperatures during the day are are very warm, uh, 80 to 90 degrees. And then at night, they're very pleasant at getting down to 40. So camping is, is, a, is a lot of fun. And so just to be at 40 degrees all day, uh, I'm a very uh, small guy. I get cold very easily. Um, and so I was just been cold, just hanging out at, at Truckee waiting for the, the contest. And so on Sunday, the day we flew, it was um, warmer. It was 60 degrees about the time of the launch, but still considerably colder than I'm normally used to. And so I got uh, the day before I flew for about an hour and um, my feet got very cold. So I, I landed and immediately went to the store and bought some wool socks, hoping that would address some of the, the issues. And so I wore my normal flight gear that I have, um, even um, gear that had kept me warm and comfortable in flight, even at altitudes up to 17,000, 17,005. And, um, and so I, I didn't really think much of it. And um, I took off and I went into, uh, I start, went through the start gate uh, the task for the day was to go from basically Truckee down to Mono Lake. Um, there was two turn points that were west of Mono Lake and then a little bit east of Mono Lake and then back home. And so... And what's the distance on that? It's about a 500K task? Uh, yeah, I would say it's shy, maybe 400, 450 uh, kilometer task for that day. Yeah, and regardless of the exact distance, Truckee is just... on when it, When the conditions permit... The, the contest yeah. has a reputation of doing uh, pretty sizable tasks for. Yeah, I, I thought the task was a moderate medium length and it seemed appropriate for the, the day um, when leaving through the start gate. And so um, leaving through the start gate, I went through on the west side of the uh, of the lake, which is not the typical exit um, out of Truckee. But the, the clouds were there and um, I had plenty of height coming out of the start gate. And I actually got low over South Tahoe, very close to m- making the decision to have to land at the airport there. But I did find lift and eventually climb out and got out to the bowl. And so I made my way south to Mono Lake. And 
cloud bases uh, towards the lake were around 15,000 feet MSL. And then they were rapidly, well, not rapidly, but they were climbing uh, probably as high as 17, 17 and a half around Mono Lake, uh, which is to be expected for that area. But one of the things that was occurring is that my vent on my glider does not close all the way. And so if I'm getting cold, I really have no way of keeping out the very cold air outside. And so around Mono Lake, I checked the outside air temperature of the air and it was 15 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I was pumping in anywhere from 15 to 21 degree uh, Fahrenheit air into my cockpit for, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half on my way uh, south to Mono Lake. And so around Mono Lake, I became um, very cold, noticeably cold. And so as I was made my way north, one of the things I also found out was my P-tube, uh, which doesn't completely drain with the way it's set up, froze. And so I found that out when my catheter started filling up like a water balloon and I had to fly like that, concerned that at some point the water balloon was going to come off and fling pressurized urine through the cockpit. And so I was kind of worried about my parachute getting dirty, to put, say. Eventually, I did get low enough. It warmed up um, when I got around Topaz Lake that I was able to relieve the pressure um, pun intended, and get my pants closed back up. And that got a little bit resolved, but I had been cold the entirety of the time. And so around Lake Topaz, which is, um, I, what would you say, like 100 miles uh, or 60 miles from? Probably, yeah, 60 or so from Truckee. I needed to make a decision. And for um, there's kind of a, a common way to get back into Truckee is to take this mountain ridge just north of the lake, which is called the Pine Nuts. And you take that and you usually can find your last Pine Nuts being on the, sorry, on the east side of the lake, right? On the east side of uh, Reno and Carson City. Yeah. Or sorry, Reno, Carson City, um, and uh, Minden Valley, that bit. Yeah. So you might've heard the Pine Nuts if you know about people flying out of Minden. And so the Pine Nuts are usually like a great place to uh, get your last climb. You can get up to 16,000 feet. 17,000 feet and make your final glide in with very comfortable over the lake um, and, and to get home. But the for this day, the pine nuts didn't look like the clouds were actually high enough to do that. And so I decided to approach Truckee from the south side of the lake um, where I saw a big cloud with a little bit of a flat bottom base on it. And um, that was very much at the southern point of the Truckee Bowl. And it's, uh, it was right over the Heavenly Ski Resort because as I was circling in this thermal, I could see the, uh, the lifts for the ski lifts. And so there I was able to find a pretty good climb up to um, 10,000, 11,000 feet. But looking at the flight computer with McCready 3, uh, that still wasn't quite enough. The climb was starting to peter out, and I was, still was in racing mode here. So I was thinking that I should be looking for one more climb, a better climb um, than what I was currently getting. And when I was approaching the southern part of Lake Tahoe, there was um, still some clouds on the eastern side of the lake along the, the mountain ranges there. Another glider had joined me in the thermal below me, and 
they were climbing up and at some point when I was thinking I should leave, the other glider did as well. But that glider went to the eastern side of the eastern ridge. So what I would thought was the, the leadward side. So my thinking at this time was, is I, I know I don't have enough to like make it at McCready 3 to the top of the finish cylinder. I guess it's technically to the bottom of the finish cylinder because the cylinder, the bottom of the finish cylinder is 8,500 feet, which is the very top end of the Class D around Truckee. My thinking is, is it's showing me I can't make it to the very bottom of the the finish cylinder, which if you're racing, you don't want to enter any higher than the you know bottom-ish area of the finish cylinder because that's uh, too much energy and uh, wasted time. And so I left the thermal with the other glider. He went to the eastern side of the ridge and there was a west wind uh, typical of that time. And so my thought was I would stay on the windward side of the mountains on the eastern side and kind of surf up um, hopefully some ridge lift on the, the top part of these ridges here until I could find another climb and then get my last uh, thousand, 2000 feet that I needed to get back home. And so I did that. And unfortunately during that whole time, um, I hit not like incredible sink, but just pretty much sinking air, even on the windward side of those mountains. And so this was probably like kind of the first point of the day in which I really should have transitioned to survival mode instead of racing mode. And so I followed and used all my energy along that ridge until I got to uh, Marlette Lake, which is pretty much directly west of Carson City. But I was about a ridge height when I found uh, some lift there. And so I circled over the lake and I, I climbed up and I had a decision to make there at this point, which was I could go back a little bit where the ridge was a little bit lower and make a left turn because um, I'd be heading south at that point. I'd be, make a left turn, go into the Carson Valley and either try to find lift there or in my day, either by landing at Minden or um, probably most likely at, at Carson City or... I can go to Truckee with um, my flight computer just showing me just shy of the bottom of the finish cylinder at this location. And so um, I didn't really know the ridge all that well going back south. And so I felt like maybe I would put myself in a situation where I thought I could get into the valley and then I couldn't. And then I'd be uh, really in trouble versus I was looking at the lowest part of the ridge on the northwest side of the bowl, which is called Brockway. And I was looking at that ridge at my height, and I really felt confident at that time that I could make it and I could make the ridge. And Truckee is kind of... I, I took a look at your trace, and it, it's, it was about... You had like eight miles to go to Brockway, and um, I think at that point put you about 23 or 25 to 1 to clearing it. Yeah. But it was straight into headwind. So, I mean, not a substantial headwind, but yeah. a combination of 15 knots plus a little downwash over the uh, western side of the lake can really quickly eat into those margins. But yeah. So, I, I didn't think I was all that crazy to go. 
And so I decided to go uh, for Truckee. And, and there is the absolute commitment into the, the Truckee Bowl um, going into there. Because once you go into the Truckee Bowl and you can't get out of it, it's only trees and the lake. That's literally it. You're talking about the, the Tahoe Bowl, right? Of, of right. Ditching, ditching your option than Carson, essentially. Yes. So I, Absolutely. Up right. to this point, from Marlet, from I guess South Tahoe to Marlet Lake, um, it seemed to me that you would have had uh, maybe not a super um, fat margin to getting to Carson, but options um, mm-hmm. had you w- decided to re- retreat downwind, uh, go over the eastern. Um, ridges and then dump into Carson, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, at least in the Minden Valley or not the Minden, the Carson Valley, uh, there is Minden, there's Carson City, um, which are well-known land out spots for gliders. And then I feel like there's some landable fields, not ideal, but like there are landable uh, fields in that area that you can get to, as opposed to when you go into the Lake Tahoe basin, that's it. it. It's trees and water. There is a third option that uh, a glider pilot did at one time, which was land on this golf course, um, but I couldn't actually find it, which just gives credence to like how narrow of a landing spot it is, because if you can't see it through the tall trees, it just you had to be right over it. And so I couldn't actually find it. And so that option wasn't really a good option. As you're alluding to, essentially, we consider the the Tahoe Basin, um, the the bull around Tahoe, to be unlandable. Yeah. Um, so to plan accordingly, essentially to have fat margin to make it into Truckee, or have outs to go, essentially it usually downwind to the east to either Carson or Minden. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Yeah, uh, so absolutely, this is the the wrong decision that I made thinking that like I can you know, I didn't feel very confident making the ridge. I just like, I felt like I could make the ridge, which is not what you want to be saying when you make that commitment going into the Lake Tahoe Basin. Now I will add on, as we talked about previous, I was very cold and something I really wanted to do was get home. Uh, after just struggling with my pee system and just being, being cold, the idea of sitting at Carson City and either waiting for a ground retrieve, knowing that the temperatures were going to again dive to very, very cold, um, almost freezing temperatures, or waiting for a tow retrieve, for some reason, just did not sound appealing uh, uh, to me, even though that was absolutely the thing I needed to be considering and really worried about. And so again, I don't think I was really in a big survival mode when I was absolutely in a condition that I needed to be thinking about survival. And so um, I made the turn west and went from Marlow Lake for the ridge. I'm flying over the, the northern part of the water and I'm heading to the lake. And of course, there's, there's a headwind. It's not crazy, but it's, it's eight or nine knots. And I was hitting sink. And then, again, it wasn't all that crazy, uh, maybe two or three knots the whole time. But considering how close of a margin it was, 
I don't know if I had just gone straight to Brockway uh, Peak or Ridge or that low spot in the saddle on the northwest part of the bowl that if I had just gone straight there, I would have had enough. Another pilot who has seen the trace has indicated that I was flying fast and possibly I was flying actually too fast for uh, the conditions. I haven't really sat down and like done the math on my polar and then added a an eight knot headwind and three knots of sync to find out what your true LOD or speed is. Um, so I could have been saying 10 knots faster than what I should have been, which typically you're supposed to fly fast if you're in sync. And especially if you're in a headwind. When I took a look at the trace at this point, going into Brockway, um, it looked like you had somewhere in the, the low twenties, twenties, the one to clear it. Yeah. And that's about what you were getting going in the headwind. So yeah. kind of anybody's guess had you, continued to push but at a certain decision at a certain point a few miles out you decided to it seemed like bail on that option right well i i made a right turn and so there's a there's a ridge that juts out um from the bowl that goes into the lake and it splits incline village on the right side and king's beach on the left side and uh it's called crystal bay if people want to look at it on a map and so there's a ridge and it has some exposed rocks it was on the windward side of the, the wind and, um, and so the heat. So I bailed and went there to try to find another climb. And I got there and I, I think I climbed a few hundred feet, but eventually got into zero sink with a headwind. And so every turn I was doing, I was getting pushed 50, 60 feet away from the ridge. And so um, after a few minutes of fighting and um, Again, I probably wasn't doing my best to fly at this this time because my feet were kind of numb. And so kind of getting my rudders and, and really being able to center on this very small, narrow, weak lift, I don't think I was doing uh, great because of... And had you dumped water at this point? I didn't carry water. Um, okay. so, yeah, uh, so I was already empty. And so I was just kind of struggling to climb either because of the day had just died out which I don't think was the case because there was still some gliders that were calling into Truckee and they were, they were at the height that they needed to be. So they obviously found climbs at the same time that I did. I just um, maybe just got unlucky where I was. They obviously wasn't where, where I was, but um, so I did feel like the day was still producing lift. There were clouds in the sky and I did feel like the wind was in the right direction. So I think, uh, academically, my thought process was right to go where I did the fine lift. It just, it wasn't there. And as you talked about, this weather sometimes just isn't there. And it, it, and it wasn't there despite my op optimism. And so I, I kind of made one push at the ridge and I, I went for a little bit and quickly found out that like I, I did not feel comfortable with it. So I returned back to that spot and climbed up to about the same altitude again. And then decided like things, time was passing and I was getting pushed. And so I made one last push and I got about a half a mile from Brockway Ridge and the ridge didn't look like it was falling under the nose, but rising in the canopy, which just meant it was going to be very, very close. And I thought at that point it was 50-50 to make it over the ridge. And if I didn't make it, it was really bad news. And if I did make it, I didn't know exactly if there was some other smaller ridge just beyond that, that I would still also have to clear. 
or if I had to use all my energy to get over the ridge and then I wouldn't have enough to make the turn. I just really didn't feel wanting to find all of that out. And I still might have had a tough time getting back to Truckee if I had just barely cleared that ridge. Maybe would have had a downwind to get to uh, runway uh, two zero, but it would have been a direct line straight to it, calling to the tower to, to clear out anybody coming. So I made the decision at that point that um, I'm landing in the lake. And of course, when I left Marlott Lake, I knew in my mind that I could land in the lake because uh, when I was refinishing my glider, the Ventus that had landed there two years earlier was right next to me um, being refinished. And, um, and so I actually thought about this lake landing, um, in some way for about a year. Um, just every time I saw that Venice, I was like that, that airplane landed in a lake and it was fine and it was okay. And, um, the pilot lived. And so I risked a lake landing, um, trying to get home to take a warm shower. And so at that point, when I was a half mile away and just felt comfortable, I just decided that, um, I'm going to have to choose myself over the glider and set up for a uh, water landing. This next part is probably the part I'm least proud of, of all the decisions that I made of. I found a spot near the shore um, because I was already cold and I definitely did not want to swim a half a mile or a quarter mile into the into, into the beach um, just because I, I was already cold. And I know Lake Tahoe is just unusually cold lake and so on my downwind, I was angry and I was audibly yelling and cussing at myself in the situation and saying, I can't believe I'm landing in this lake knowing that I had just refinished and worked so hard on this airplane and uh, knowing that like I could be doing substantial damage to it or at a minimum, I've got to change all the control and push rods and anything buried in there that's going to get rusted out. And so on downwind, I did not put the airplane in a landing configuration. I did put the gear down, um, but in LS6, it does take a little finagling to get the gear into its lock position, which I'm pretty sure I didn't do when I'll, I'll tell you what happens next. And then the I left the glider in zero flap, which uh, changes the attitude in which you flare significantly. Um, much different than what I'm, I'm typically used to. And so I, I found a, a quiet spot near the, the shore. Another issue I was dealing with was just making sure that no one was in my landing area because anything out of, uh, they have some boats that are moored off the beach and they're kind of like a, maybe a hundred yards off the beach. Um, so anything out towards the middle, the center of the lake of those boats is clear water, there's lots of room. You can, you got all the space in the world to do it. It's just you're in deep water and you're going to have to swim to get back. Anything inside of those moored ships towards the shore, the water is much uh, shallower, but that's where kind of like the people are. And so I was very conscious of trying to find like um, a, somebody who was just swimming. And so all they had was their head exposed. And so I, I really didn't want to hurt anybody going into the lake. And I wanted to make sure I had enough energy that if I needed to, I could turn towards the center of the lake, clear the boats, and then make it out to the water. So I kept my energy up um, going into final. And about 50 feet off the ground, I saw that the 
path in front of me was clear and I looked down the airspeed and I was going 50 knots, which is uh, not minimum energy going into the water. And so I started a flare and tried to flare fairly close to the water and um, I hit the water and I hit it flat, not tail first. And um, the reason why I don't think I had my landing gear uh, locked down is because the landing gear went back up. And as you and I have discussed, Zach, that that lower part of that fuselage acts like a wing when you hit the water and it'll just suck you in. And so I probably slowed down a little bit, but I still probably hit the water at 45 knots and then just got sucked down. And so I stopped from 45 knots to zero, which probably felt like two seconds, but was probably a second. And so all that water displaced under my fuselage went over the roots of my wings. And that was just uh, an immense amount of force. And it actually pulled the lift pins of the, the forward lift pins of my both wings of the root, or sorry, both wing roots have forward lift pins and those got pulled out of the fuselage and up. And then um, because of all that bending on around the root, it disbonded the leading edge on the lower side where the lower and the upper skin are bonded together at the factory. It disbonded that to basically outboard of to the outboard edge of the spoiler box. I don't want to say I stopped flying when I decided to land in the lake, but I definitely was not 100% focused on ensuring that I landed uh, tail first, minimum energy, airplane in the right configuration, landing gear down and locked. Because if had I done that, um, I think my airplane would be okay. Yeah, that's a uh, again, as I said in the in the opener here, very glad you're safe. Um, definitely situations where could things could have been slightly different, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. So um, you managed to save yourself, which is obviously very important. Um, and uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. One thing before we get into kind of the debrief on this, I just want to hit on, hit on. I, I don't know, I think everybody listening to this is going to have their own reaction to your story, but one of my takeaways from it is just that you get in this space, this headspace where you're cold, things aren't going well, things are going, going downhill real quick, and you can, I, I think everybody is susceptible to the tunnel vision that you found yourself in, to the um, panic situation you're in. Um, once your flight starts going downhill, I know we all like to want to think that, Hey, we would have approached the situation different. There would have been a different outcome had, had I been in the cockpit or whoever's listening, been in the cockpit. However, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to think about the situation that way, right? You were in a situation where you're cold, um, you're stressed out, you're fatigued, um, you're frustrated and things got, as you, as you alluded to, things got missed. And I think Obviously, not putting yourself in that situation to have to make those decisions is is key in that. But going down this path and going down, getting low in the lake, getting low in an unlandable terrain, I think some of the symptoms you exhibited in that could show their head in, in for any pilot. Yeah, um, I think one of the lessons, the big lessons is learned is that uh, your mentality for being able to continue safe flight might actually change uh, during the flight with enough distractions. I know there's the I'm safe checklist before you get in the airplane, but really you kind of need to be checking in on yourself every now and then and say, am I, am I still safe? Am I still, you know, probably physically and everything else is going on, but like there's been a lot of accidents because people have gotten dehydrated 
or a lot of accidents because people wanted to get home. And in my case, I definitely wanted to get home. And so there was probably a moment in time when I was probably thinking like, you know, I should just go to Carson City and land. It is such a convenient spot to land out for Truckee. And uh, it's a contest. We've got we got tow pilots ready to go. We got multiple tow pilots ready to go, especially in a contest environment where people will come get you. And it, it's all set up for that, like really leaning towards landing out uh, should have been in the, the beginning part of my mind as opposed to getting pushed back to it. And so that's kind of like the heartbreak situation for me is that I, I should have probably just said, you know, I'm just not having a great flight. And it's not working getting into Truckee. So like, I really just need to get into this Carson Valley and just get to Carson and land and just be cold. It's probably because I also wasn't doing a great job of transitioning from racing mode to survival mode. And I have done some low saves, uh, not like crazy low saves, but low saves to uh, get me out of a safe altitude, but basically at the bottom of my racing altitude but i have gotten to the bottom of that and had to dig myself out of a hole and get home still and so um i do have some experience doing that but uh just going into that basin to do that was not the right time especially being cold especially of dealing with the p2 especially being kind of a weak day um that was kind of the comments of the pilots of that day was like the, the cloud bases were all there but it was a weak day and i suspect that was because of the lower than normal surface temperatures there was obviously a temperature differential to create the cloud bases that we're typically used to but like that oomph and the the thermals was just not there and so just like compiling all of those and just making a decision uh, to be safe here i should just go home and especially to save my airplane the one that i worked so hard on uh that should have been like really focused on my mind but um you get tunnel vision, like you said. Another pilot says, like you're just your brain shrinks, like you just don't like operate well. So if you ever feel like you're getting into that kind of situation, maybe you just land, take it to the next closest airport and uh, call your buddies to get home. It's uh, much cheaper to buy steak than it is to uh, to try to find a replacement glider. Um, as I'm in this situation now. Yeah. One thing I do want to circle back to and kind of hit on is uh, when you're talking about being in racing mode versus survival mode, but I'd have to say that there's two different situations here, right? You were entering the contest to race. Was this a competition day or practice day? This was a practice day, unfortunately, so not okay. even not even for points. Yeah. So so when we're flying in, in any contest, like there's obviously a boatload of external pressures on us other than just flying. It's, it's racing at scoring points. Like you said, getting back in that, that, ter- that finish cylinder, but, uh, racing, at least in my experience and, and what I've seen should always be like a secondary objective, right? It's primary, get yourself home, get yourself, have a good flight, get yourself home. And then if you score points, great, right. Until you get into the upper echelon of pilots, people who are really trying to score points to get on a national team or something like that. It's, I mean, for all of us, we're out there to have fun. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so I think there's, there's a couple different mindsets you can go into this with one is, yeah, you are that top tier pilot. You are trying to up your pilot ranking, prove yourself X, Y, and Z, or there's, Hey, I'm going to fly in a contest, but I'm, I'm just going to be flying there. And if I score points, it's a bonus. I know when I, when I flew Truckee a couple, um, two years in a row, a few years back, like that was more of my mentality of, yeah, it'd be great to score some points, but really just trying to fly the day and I'm, I'm, I'm flying during a contest versus racing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I think this was my third Truckee. And so I think I was more motivated um, that year to really increase my speed than I was the previous years, which was the first time I was there. It was like very unique to that area, very cautious. The weather happened to actually be very good that first year. And so I never really had to like really fight to get back the, the first year. The second year, we did fly two days and one of the days was tough to get back in. And I, I did make some good decisions and I got over the, I got over the, the Truckee Castle wall and, and got home. And one of the experiences that I had was, is once you get over that ridge to Truckee, Truckee is so far down in comparison to those ridges. You clear those ridges, you just feel like you have all this energy that you can get to. And so I was remembering that experience and going, I just, I just got to get to Brockway and then it'll just be, I'll have plenty of energy to get back there. And so I, I still really hadn't like struggled, struggled to get into Truckee and had to make the decision to land out. And so for my third year and with my newly refinished glider, I was like really kind of wanting to, I was getting excited to fly quick. And I, again, the day looks wise, looked great. High bases, uh, plenty of queue. It looked like a day to really, um, challenge yourself and push yourself to get um, some speed up. And um, uh, like you said, uh, there are days when you're, even when you're racing that you have to go back into survival mode. And so I thought of like the three S's when you should be making decisions. And the first S is yourself or self and say, is this decision going to harm myself? And then the second thing you should consider is, will this decision hurt my ship? And then the Third and last thing, it should always be last, is will this decision hurt my standing? And I was putting standing ahead of my ship, at least, and possibly ahead of myself. Again, I, I always knew landing in the lake was safe. So I think I was just putting my standing in front of the ship. And as a result, I, I hurt my ship. It's a brutal sport that we do when we're racing to try to push yourself and push yourself in uncomfortable situations um, but also keeping yourself safe. And it, it can get kind of a slippery slope in both ways. You can become too safe and never get better, or you can get too dangerous and you can hurt your ship, which I obviously have. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Yeah, thanks for that insight. Another question for you here. In terms of personal minimums, and like you mentioned, McCready 3 taking that as a final glide, you and I had a, a discussion previously about safety McCready's and what we end up using, what's conservative versus aggressive. Is that something going forward in future flying you'll, you'll be altering and, and changing of what you consider to be aggressive and what you end up flying for, for final glides. Had a McCready three been what you were up to this point, essentially considering a good final glide. 
Uh, no, I, I my first time there, I think I was doing uh, what you said and pushing the McCready up to uh, five or six. And I've even had like a McCready seven final glide coming in from the north at Truckee and still land. I still needed to find a small climb to get back into Truckee, which can show you even over the course of a at cloud base at 17,000 feet um, doing a 50 mile final glide into Truckee. That's a long, that's a lot of time for uh, some sink to hit you. And so obviously doing a McCready three in the Truckee, that is just uh, ludicrous. And the pilots meeting that morning, we even talked about like McCready four, add some. And then when you're flying back, you fly at McCready one uh, speed wise. And so, and so that, again, that was kind of an issue. Maybe I was flying too fast, even with my very low safety margin as it was. And I wasn't trying to necessarily race, but I was trying to fight both a headwind and a sink at the same time. And so flying fast is okay, but there is too fast. And when you're in survival mode as well. Uh, so definitely for Truckee, we'll be increasing my McCready coming into it and definitely will be much more considerate of the, the Carson City, Reno Stead, last ditch uh, places and making sure that like I feel really confident going into Truckee that um, I can make it and make it safely. Yeah, excellent considerations there. One last, I've got probably two more two more things hit, points to hit on here, but I think this just is uh, 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 unfortunately an excellent example of, of links in a chain, right? We, we learn in training that um, what leads up to accidents, typically it's not one thing, but a number of things that cascade and lead to altered mind states or different judgment, and then ultimately resulting in putting yourself in situations you'd rather not be in. And you wouldn't have put yourself in had you have been a, uh, of a different state of mind. So I think to our listeners out there, to all pilots in, in the community, it's important to consider, hey, if I'm my feet are cold, let's break the link right there, right? Let's turn around. Let's stop, get out of racing mode. Let's find a place to land. Uh, before you keep pushing yourself into uncomfort, uncomfortability, not being familiar with the situation, being lower than you'd like to be, and then ultimately being in a place that's unlandable. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, assessment. And especially when it kind of gets into racing. Um, with, with racing, you need to be really comfortable with all your setup and your ship and your computer and and all of that. And so when and you, the terrain and the, the, the environment terrain. as well, right? So, yeah. So like when you got to get into survival mode, all that other stuff needs to be sorted out. And so uh, clearly I still needed to be even sorting out my ship with the vent or sorting out my flight computer with um, how I wanted to, to approach Truckee or just understanding that the day was just weak. And um, if that's the case, then like it's obviously it's never a dishonor to land at an airport and especially around a, a contest, um, but it's no dishonor to land out, especially at an airport, especially one that's really close and very convenient to either get uh, an aero tow or um, a ground retrieve back. And so um, those things need to be all sorted out before you start doing the riskier or things that make you a little bit more uncomfortable. You got to have all that other stuff sorted out before you do that. And the Truckee Basin is just kind of a unique situation. It is really a don't get in there ever unless you have it. You can clear over it easily. And I just, uh, I didn't, I didn't do that. Yeah. Thanks for that, David. So I think that sums up the events of the day pretty thoroughly. 
obviously thank you for that insight. You know, there's been a lot of bits and pieces kind of making it out of Trekkie on, on what ended up happening, but great to get your perspective on that day and the events leading up to it. Kind of looking back to the following days and weeks on that, kind of following up on the accident, what have you learned in, in reflecting about that accident and that post-accident timeline, especially in regards to remaining optimistic about the sport, because you're willing to come on this podcast and talk. You're, you're, you've talked to me about finding a second glider. It's, it's great to see that you're um, not discouraged from soaring again, but uh, how have you managed to keep a positive attitude and, and what are some lessons that you've learned in that time since? Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. I guess the first thing I will say is uh, I found out that I, I got a lot of support um, in the pilot community. I had a lot of pilots uh, hug me and tell me um, I made the right decision in regards to uh, landing in the lake and not in the trees. And uh, that felt really good to know that um, if you weren't around, that you would be missed. And so uh, at a minimum, I, I did probably garner some better connections with the pilots at Truckee and some pilots in my former club were able to kind of create a better relationship from that. Two, I've learned this is just going to have to be part of my story of my pilot career. I've been told a, a lot of my life I was a great pilot. I'm a, uh, a great stick. I, I seem to have like a natural affinity for this. And uh, I was doing okay in cross-country soaring. I had some confidence in my ability and so one of the things I'm going to have to do is learn to absorb that this is part of my story and who I am. And just because I had this accident, it doesn't mean a final judgment that I'm actually not a good pilot. I, I shouldn't be racing and um, I don't have the capacity to make good decisions. If anything, I've worked really hard to feel uh, a grateful that when the time came, I did make the best decision when the decisions really mattered going into the lake. Given the conditions that it was, I need to be really kind to myself and say, like, you did the best that you can. You tried your darndest and it's not the ideal result, but you do get to live the fight the other day and just know that um, this lesson might be the thing that kind of makes you the safer pilot. It might open up my thinking and actually lead me to a national championship as opposed to preventing me from getting there um, because I, I've had this incident. I've learned that there's some other good pilots that I really respect and they've broken airplanes before and they've been back. And so that's helpful to know um, that sometimes this happens. It's always preventable most of the time, my case for sure, but like um, it does happen. And when we do race, we are skirting the line a little bit on pushing ourselves. So um, stay mentally strong and, and ready to go into it. And the last thing I, I want to mention is um, Truckee is an amazing place to soar. I don't want anybody to hear this podcast and say, well, I'm never going to Truckee because I don't want to land in a lake. Um, Truckee is an amazing place to soar. And when the temperatures are where it normally is, it's a great place to camp. It's a great place to fly out of when the days are great, they're freaking fantastic. And, um, I love ending the day at Truckee as opposed to Minden because of like kind of the pilot community that lives on that, that airfield and the ones that go are willing to fly out of Truckee also are, are great pilots themselves. So like, I really don't want anybody to get dissuaded to going to the Truckee regional because of this. I 
just be cautious and land at some airports. But uh, Truckee, flying out of Truckee is amazing. And I would recommend it to anybody, even today. I'm hoping to have a glider and time to fly next year if there is one. And uh, I'm looking forward because it's just such amazing flying out there. Yeah, amazing. And then at the same time, reserve, deserves a lot of respect and and uh, um, just just knowledge and comfortability with that terrain, right? Yeah. Well, I will say when you do have the altitude and it's very easy to get in on a day, flying over Lake Tahoe is one of the coolest things you can do oh, definitely. in a glider. So like just because I didn't do it very well doesn't mean it doesn't have its rewards. And it's so cool to fly over that, that lake uh, on, on a final glide off the pine nuts and, and then just come in and land on a very nice runway and have a great ground cool pull you off and take you to your, your glider and then have some great beers at the benches and barbecue that they have there. I just, uh, it's an amazing time when everything uh, goes right. And I, again, everyone should do it once. Yeah. Great advice. Um, yeah. One last thing I'll have to add before, before we sign off, obviously, David, again, thank you for sharing your story. I'm really hoping that, uh, everybody listening can take away some lesson from this. One of my takeaways is just, yeah, we're all susceptible to this stuff. Um, we're all, everybody can have a minor, minor issues that lead down the line to, um, less than optimal decision-making. I think it's, yeah, it's our job to, to be humble and not macho, um, in light of this and, uh, learn from David. I know there's in the last two years, there's been, David's a third glider to go into Lake Tahoe, not saying that he didn't learn from the last two, but it's not, uh, it's not impossible to find yourself going down this path and taking lessons from David to realize, Hey, my feet are cold. Let's fix that before I make the next bad decision. I think that's my big takeaway. And Nobody's really above above having links of a chain that lead to uh, landing somewhere that that would be considered otherwise unlandable. So, yeah, David, unless you have anything else to add, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your selflessness and in, in sharing this story and getting it out to the the soaring community. And I'm hoping that yeah, like I said, people take lessons, people learn, and uh, we're safer as a community in light of this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you um, asking me to come on and tell my story because like I said, I want it to be my story and um, I'm optimistic and I'm looking to be ready and equipped again to be chasing around Avenal uh, next, uh, next spring. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to flying with you as well. So we'll see you later. Thanks again. Take care. Okay. Bye. Hi everyone, Sergio from Story Master here with tips and advice about cross-country flying. And today we're going to talk about glider polars. A sailplane polar is a diagram which shows us the sailplane sink rate of each flying speed. This is one of the most important performance characteristics of sailplanes, almost like an idea of each sailplane type. From this diagram, all McReady curves are derived, and the maximum glide ratio is determined. But in order to know how reliable these values are, first let's talk about how polars are made. Drag polar flight test campaigns are some of the most expensive ones of the entire flight test campaign. 
Firstly, because the sailplane is instrumented, therefore requiring calibration and maintenance. And secondly, because it takes dozens of high-altitude tolls at the early hours of the morning or by the end of the day to accomplish them. There are basically two ways to determine glide performance. Pure glides or flight test comparison with a chase aircraft serving as speed reference. The flight test technique is super simple. It's a basic speed stabilization of about 30 seconds done throughout the entire speed envelope to record the sync rate of each flying speed. When organized in a graph, all recorded speeds and sync rate points will form a scattered from which a line of best fit is retrieved, and this line is the polar curve we all console in our flight manuals. But why shouldn't we blindly trust in this information if it's published in the manufacturer's manuals? Since this is such an important information for marketing and sale purposes, manufacturers especially prepare their prototypes for this testing, waxing, sealing, taping and preparing the sailplane to almost perfection. You obviously extract all the performance from the type. But get the same sailplane or the same prototype, add surface aging, 10 years of usage and that same prototype will not perform like the manual anymore. That is why it's so important to add some margin to your performance data, mainly when in need to perform low energy final glides. Does your manual state that your airplane has a maximum glide ratio of 1 to 42? It might be more realistic to use a value of 1 to 40. The renowned pilot and flight test engineer Dick Johnson published several comparisons in the Soaring Society of America Soaring magazine of published drag pullers against drag pullers retrieved from independent flight test campaigns. And there's considerable difference between them, with differences of two points of L over D being observed in some cases. Johnson's work teaches us an important lesson, sailplane performance can be different from the published values. And considering that all drag polars are corrected standard atmosphere and that all the testing is performed in stable conditions, something that would be very rare for us to find in real life, operationally speaking, it's better to rely on good decision making and to use proper safety margins. I wish you all happy flying. For more tips, follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website, SurreyMaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or send us a message on our website at SoaringTheSky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.